Hello, welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Graham Wilson. Today, we thought we'd take a look at women's health. And to do that, we're going to meet Eileen Lavis, a physiotherapist with experience in rehabilitation, continence and pelvic floor physiotherapy, and pain management. Eileen is Principal Physiotherapist and Continence and Pelvic Floor Physiotherapist at Complete Pelvic Floor Physiotherapy, with branches in the Newcastle suburb of Katara and the Lake Macquarie suburb of Rathmines. Among Eileen's special interests is women's health in general. Eileen, thanks for joining us on the program today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Tell me about the path into your profession. You started out studying physiotherapy as a specialty? Yes. So uh, having played a lot of sports myself and had a few injuries myself, I've had some exposure to physiotherapy. So that was my choice then uh, to lead into the role of physiotherapy. But I always had a special interest in women's health. Even as a student, I did my special interest electives in women's health. And then after graduating, I then proceeded to do more and more courses, um, culminating in me doing my postgraduate training in Melbourne University in continence and pelvic floor rehabilitation. Um, I now teach for the Australian Physiotherapy Association uh, courses on women's sexual pain and I also teach at the University of Newcastle with regards to uh, continence and pelvic floor issues to the physiotherapy undergraduate students. Can you identify for us then what are the biggest threats to a woman health-wise? In terms of threats or risk factors to a healthy lifestyle, uh, really there's sort of, you know, five main things. So smoking is one, and this is the um, single most preventable cause of poor health and death in both men and women. And um, the recent Australian Institute for Health and Wellbeing uh, website is identifying that approximately 11% of um, women over the age of 18 are smoking. A positive trend though from this is though that the rate of smoking during pregnancy is actually falling. Another risk factor or threat is alcohol intake um, with women starting to increase the level of their alcohol intake that's exceeding the recommended guidelines. Um, certainly substance abuse is also an issue with more than 13% of uh, females over 14 in the last 12 months having used um, some illicit substances. Violence towards women is also a big issue um, with two in five women having experienced some sort of violence since turning the age of 15. But I think the thing that comes up in the news the most about the biggest threat or risk factor to women's health is actually um, our level of obesity and overweight in society. And um, recent studies show that approximately 6 in 10 women and 7 in 10 men in Australia are either overweight or obese. And again, this has a number of factors uh, of threats to women's health, including high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, asthma, troubles with their sleep, um, implications for their mental health as well. So I think when you look at threats or risk factors to a healthy lifestyle for women, they're probably the five main issues I would consider. And it seems to me, just listening carefully as you were saying, uh, you know, going through those conditions, many of those are so-called lifestyle 
preventable things, aren't they? I mean, we absolutely. We, if, we, if we exercise a bit more, if we eat the right things, it all sounds too easy, and people are going, "Oh, it's the same old stuff. I'll turn off now." But, yes. it, but it's not like that, is it? It can be very, very exciting to embrace a healthier lifestyle. Certainly, it can, and in fact, it's not as hard as some people think. So if you're between the age of 18 and 64, the Australian guidelines is 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise per week. So if you break that down, that's less than an hour a day that you need to do of exercise. Now, if you can add in two strength conditioning sessions in there, that's also going to be a positive. Now, if you're over 65, the guideline is only for 30 minutes of exercise most days. And when you consider we have 24 hours in a day, 30 minutes isn't such a big ask. Um, I think there are some issues with people having confidence to exercise, uh, having the knowledge to exercise, and in some cases, the economics to exercise. But it doesn't have to be that hard. It's as simple as going for a walk. Um, and doing that in the outdoors also has the positive effect of improving a lot of people's mental health as well. Do you have any idea why people find that so hard? I mean, just go and do it. Put your walkers on and go. It, it should be that easy, but it's not, is it? Some people really struggle with it. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Certainly, we are a time-poor society, mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's also how we spend our time. So from a personal perspective, when my children do their swimming lessons, I hop in one of the pools and do some exercise at the same time. And as I'm in the pool, I see so many parents sitting on the sideline on their phones and I think to myself, here's a perfect opportunity for you to be a positive role model for your children and exercise at the same time. You're already there, so you may as well do it. And it doesn't have to be swimming. It could be, you know, you take your children to soccer training and you sit in the car and watch them. Well, what's wrong with actually just walking around the field while they do their training session? You'll actually see more of what they do than if you were just sitting in the car. So I think it's time management as well as just getting out of the rut of our routine of what we're doing we hop on our phones we hop on our tablets or our ipads and that sort of seems to consume us a little bit more there's many many exercise routines you can do that don't require you to need the confidence to go to a gym or a group class and there's so much great stuff available on the internet now that can guide you through some really safe exercise programs that you can do in the security and safety of your own home. So if you have a small children and you can't get out and exercise, but you can put on, you know, something from the internet and do a 30-minute exercise program in your lounge room. You mentioned strength training. How important is that to maintain muscle tone, especially as you get older? It's exceptionally important. So we know that as people age, whether you're male or female, your muscle strength does deteriorate. However, there's a lot of evidence to show that those deteriorating factors can actually be somewhat reversed or slowed down by doing strength training. They're now doing more research and this will be new research that hopefully will be coming out um, in the next few years looking at the impact of muscle bulk on your immune system. So they now think that muscles may have a positive effect on your immune system, which is often why 
you know, strong, healthy people don't get as unwell as non-strong, healthy people. So with regards to strength training, there's lots of evidence to show that strength training is one of the most preventable causes for osteoporosis, which affects women quite significantly. And we also know that as people age, they are more at risk of falls. Now, if your muscles are stronger, you're less at risk of falls and then the subsequent health conditions that occur as a result of that. So strength training doesn't have to be going to the gym and lifting heaps of weights with muscle people standing around you looking at themselves in the mirror. It can be simply doing some push-ups in your lounge room, um, some, some dip-type exercises on a chair at home, or doing some squat exercises while you're watching the TV. Do you have much to do, Eileen, with um, older people and physiotherapy, people who perhaps are... Uh, on a walking frame, you know, they need that sort of support for confidence even to get around. Yes. You can get to a point in your life where you feel, I can't exercise, you know, my heart isn't strong enough, or I've got a breathing problem, you know, um, what's I get too breathless too soon, how can I then exercise? That's a very um, common factor. Of course, with those type of clients, we're looking to get clearance from their health professional before we start any type of exercise program. But often these patients have become so um, weak and debilitated that even just doing some gentle arm movements is enough to get them going. Um, certainly with these patients, we want to work a lot on their balance. Um, so working on their posture. And so even if you have a heart condition or a respiratory condition, you can work on your posture to be trying to stand up more straight. So there are things that we can do for those people who um, have lost a lot of strength, have lost a lot of mobility and also have uh, comorbidities that limit their ability to exercise. I think the biggest thing there is that we just get clearance from their uh, specialist that it is safe for us to do a very graduated exercise program and that the exercise program is individualised. So we do an individual assessment with the person, work out what they're capable of and more importantly, what their goals are. So their goals may well be to go out, whereas our goals is to make sure they don't fall. Yes. Will you always see some sort of improvement? Generally speaking, however, it does require the client to put in an effort as well. As you know, with exercise, it only gets better if you do it, and it only gets better if it's monitored and upgraded. So if you start off doing five squats and you do five squats forever, then it's going to get to a point where you're not going to improve. So you need to constantly change the program because that's what changes challenges the muscles to improve but it also challenges the nerve pathways to learn new movements learn new ways of doing things as well can we talk a little bit about bone health how that relates to uh, physical fitness you mentioned strength training can help yes um yes. is that because a stronger muscle or a muscle that's working properly isn't going to strain the bone not necessarily. Uh, what it more comes down to is if a person is doing weight-bearing exercise, that maintains bone density. Uh -huh. And so uh, if people have fragile bones, uh, so severe osteoporosis, for instance, 
In some cases, yes, a muscle contraction can cause a fracture. However, it's more about maintaining the bone density um, and that's where weight-bearing, strengthening and resistance training is what's important. So for the arms, for instance, of course, we don't walk on our arms. A weight-bearing exercise for the arms would be something like doing push-ups. If you're unable to get on the floor, you can do push-ups on a table or on the wall. So there's always a way of being able to modify an exercise. What can you do when your muscles become so stiff? You know, you'll find people who can't touch their toes anymore. Yes. Is there a way forward with that? Can you, I mean, can you regain flexibility? Certainly you can. And actually, the research shows that doing three stretches many times during the day is actually more effective than doing 20 stretches once a day. So... Muscles have what we call creep in them, which is how much uh, extra flexibility they get. And so after doing three stretches, that kind of plateaus off. So we often suggest to patients that they're holding their stretches for about 30 seconds. They do three at a time, but they do that several times in a day and they'll get more improvement. So with regards to stretching, unless they have a neurological condition that maybe has an implication on the nerve input to the muscle, then in most cases you can improve flexibility. Do you need to, uh, or is it helpful to incorporate some sort of breathing routine with the way you stretch? Sometimes it depends on the muscle you're stretching. So for instance, some of the neck muscles can also be muscles that assist in breathing. So if you're stretching your neck, yes, there could be a positive benefit to breathe out on the stretch um, and then you're then having an impact on the two functions of the muscle, which is to be a neck muscle and a, a breathing muscle. Would that same effect happen through the hamstring muscles, for instance, in the legs? I think the important thing is that when you hold your breath, your whole body becomes stiff. So in order to breathe through your stretching, you're allowing the oxygen to the muscles, which they need, but you're also allowing some relaxation component with it as well. Yes. Now, the hamstrings, for instance, these are in the back of your legs, right? Correct, yes. What's an example of a stretch that you might recommend for that, just so people can picture what you mean by a stretch? Yes. So the stretch that I prefer for the hamstrings is if people can get down on the floor at an open doorway, they're going to lie down on their back, one leg is going to rest up on the door frame and the other leg goes through the doorway. Now, in the ideal world, you would hopefully have a 90 degree angle between your body and the door frame, but the majority of people can't do that. So what you need to do is just have the foot on the door frame at a level where the knee is straight and you're just getting a comfortable stretching feeling through the back of the thigh, but not a pain. Aha. Uh -huh. And you hold it there at that level that feels taut but not hurting. Correct. Yes. When you stretch a rubber band, you keep pulling on it and it becomes more and more taut. That's not the sort of stretch that you're recommending for the body at all. Correct. So... After you, say, for instance, hold that stretch for 30 seconds, you'll then be able to move a little bit closer to the wall, hold the next one for 30 seconds. So in your 
rubber band analogy, essentially, yes, we are doing that in a graduated sense, though. So it's, it's like if it was a rubber band, so you'd hold the rubber band at a certain level of tautness for a little while, and then yes. in the next then 30 seconds, it, it would be a little more. Okay. Yes. You're listening to Wellbeing. My guest today is Eileen Lavis, and we're talking about physiotherapy and health that relates to that, and women's health in particular. Eileen, you are a specialist in um, pelvic floor physiotherapy. Perhaps we can spend the rest of the program talking about some of the issues around that and the health issues that you treat with that. Just run through some of those with us. Perhaps continence we could start with or incontinence. Certainly. So continence affects approximately 4.8 million Australians. The majority of those are female. Um, if you uh, look at some statistics, approximately one in three women who've ever had a baby will have problems with incontinence. It is partly a condition of old age, um, but is not alone a condition of old age. So we know that we have elite athletes who have continence issues. We have children who have continence issues. So it's not just a factor of old age. So in terms of what we as a pelvic floor physiotherapist do is a lot of it revolves around looking at people's muscle strength and muscle coordination of their pelvic floor muscles. Now, a lot of people get a little bit confused here and think pelvic floor muscles, I have to lie on the floor to do the exercises. It's not the case. Your pelvic floor muscles go from your pubic bone at the front to the tailbone at the back. And when you're in sitting and you can feel those two sitting bones you sit on, they extend out to there. And they're kind of like a little bit of a trampoline in that area. They wrap around all the organs as well. So they also have a job to keep the organs supported. Now, when the organs aren't supported, that's another condition we treat, which is prolapse. So we treat a combination of um, bladder incontinence, bowel incontinence and prolapse. Strengthening exercises have been highly researched to show that they can improve, uh, especially incontinence, and that it's actually safe to do it. So as long as the person can activate the muscle, there is strong research evidence to show that if they're given a specialised, individualised, monitored program, they will get an improvement in the strength and coordination of those muscles. So... It's very easy to do once you know how to do them properly. But the problem is that approximately 70% of women aren't doing the exercises properly. And if we just give patients a handout, uh, often they're still doing it wrong with about 50% of women. Um, so we usually recommend that you know women, if they're not sure if they're doing it right, that they do see a continence and pelvic floor physiotherapist to assess their muscle strength and coordination because that will enable them to have the best results uh, from a program. I think what you're saying there, it's across a lot of um, treatment areas, surprisingly low percentage of people who will go home and do what the doctor says uh, you know they won't finish the course of drugs or they won't you know they won't do the exercises or they won't follow the program i think the statistics are that in a gp waiting room if this was a study that was done which included parts of newcastle where i'm from uh, they did a study and no matter what you went into the GP waiting room for, um, you were asked about your level of continence. 
And some of the results that have come back from that is that well over 30% of people have um, continence issues. And in some cases, it can be up to 60%. Yet of those people, only 30% actually seek any help. So the thing with continence issues is it's a very taboo subject. And for a lot of people, it can be quite embarrassing and humiliating to have accidents. So if they seek help and they see improvement, it's a self-fulfilling thing for them to continue with their program. So often we have very good compliance rates with our programs because it's very much targeted at what the patient goals are. So I agree that there can be levels of poor compliance, but as a therapist, it's our job to try and work out why the compliance is poor and how together with the patient we can rectify that. Is the kind of exercise that's required for pelvic floor to correct incontinence, say, is that an easy thing to describe? You say you need to tailor it to the individual, but is there something common that we could all perhaps do? So as I said before, there's you know a large percentage of women who aren't sure or even doing the exercises correctly. So whilst it might be easy to say it, actually putting it into practice is harder. So I guess the example I can give you is if you bend your elbow, which your bicep muscle, so the muscle at the front of your upper arm makes you do that, your brain knows that your bicep muscle is working because there are receptors in the muscle that tell you it's working, the joint is moving, so the joint tells you it's moving, and you have your eyes to see your hand coming closer to your head. So you have three ways of knowing that your muscles are working. With the pelvic floor muscles, of course, you can't see them working because they're underneath and they're under your clothing a lot of the time. So sometimes, you know, um, that can be a factor in people not understanding if they're doing the muscle exercises correctly. But because they don't do a big joint movement as well, there's another feedback form that's lost to the brain so often what we will say is to patients, what it should really be is a squeeze and a lift. And so if you can think about all your waterworks, um, so think at the front and the back, so both urine and bowel, so think anally, and think about trying to squeeze and pull up, kind of like a drawstring on a bag. In some instances, we may say to people, uh, if you're on the toilet, try and stop the flow of urine and feel how that feels, but only do that one or two times. We don't encourage people to use that as a method of exercising um, because there is some question as to whether or not that can set up urine retract infections. But if people aren't sure if they're doing it properly, certainly they can try and stop the flow. And if they can do that, then the muscles are working. So they just have to do it without... Um, stopping the flow at the same time. That's a very good example of how to locate the muscles to sort of feel if they're working or not. I mean, it's, it's probably a little bit like, you know, you hear people with singing and what have you, they say, oh, use your diaphragm. Well, where's that? Who knows what that yes. feels like? So yes. you talk about the effects of it probably rather than that's your diaphragm, you've got to use it. You've got to train people, don't you? Which is what you were saying before. You tailor a program and show people how to do this. Yes. What should younger women be doing to reduce their risk of developing things like osteoporosis in later life? Is there anything that can be done? Yes. 
certainly diet is a big proportion of osteoporosis and especially in the younger years that you've described, you're still laying down your bone density and your calcium. So diet is the biggest factor. So making sure that you've got a diet that's high in calcium so having your yogurt every day, having a piece of cheese every day, having a glass of milk, and then in conjunction with that, as we've described earlier, the effect of bone health. So making sure that between those ages, they are active, they do exercise, they exercise on most days of the week for at least 30 minutes, and that that exercise includes weight-bearing exercise. So it's not just sitting down and doing exercises, it's standing up, it's running, it's jumping, it's skipping, it's riding a bike, it's swimming, it's a whole variety of exercise. So again, it's that common theme that we hear for so many things, it's about diet and exercise. And if seven, 10 to 17 year olds can enjoy exercise and have a good understanding of what exercise can do for their health, then hopefully they will carry that over into their 30s, 40s and 50s. Finally, Eileen, as women age, how do their health concerns change? I think as women age, as we've discussed, you lose bone density, which affects your posture. You then lose muscle strength. And when you lose muscle strength, uh, issues of, say, incontinence and prolapse increase as well. So... We also have the changes in hormonal aspects for women. So as women age, I think the important thing is for them to realize that at no matter what age you are, there are some capacities for you to be able to improve your health, whether it's drinking more water or having more fruits and vegetables or just making yourself walk that little bit of extra distance in the car park to the shops. So no matter what age you are, there are some small steps that everyone can take to try and improve their health. Good advice. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Our guest today on Wellbeing has been Eileen Lavis, Principal Physiotherapist and Continence and Pelvic Floor Physiotherapist at Rathmines Physiotherapy and Sports Injury Centre and at Complete Pelvic Floor Physiotherapy with branches in the Newcastle suburb Katara and the Lake Macquarie suburb Rathmines. I'm Graham Wilson, and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.